Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, the West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined as always by the great Dan Feinberg, THR's chief TV critic. What's up, Dan? Not much, not much. Just uh, just getting ready for the Super Bowl. How about you? Oh, same thing. Yeah, uh, you know, obviously Super Bowl, the biggest live TV viewing day of the year is Sunday as the Chiefs play the Eagles in the Super Bowl. And you've got a bunch of expensive commercials that are all hope to go viral. More importantly, it's also the first two, t- the first time that two black quarterbacks will face off in the Super Bowl, and that's honestly going to cap a, a, what has been a great week for sports, and with LeBron also breaking Kareem's all-time NBA scoring record. Plus, you know, spring training is only two weeks away. Let's let's at least put these this in context so that it's valid for our podcast. Uh, Survivor's Remorse executive producer LeBron <laughs> James uh, breaking the NBA scoring record held by Airplane co-star Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, also our sometime THR, THR. contributing yeah, exactly. <laughs> columnist, so, award-winning so columnist. So unlike when we talk about uh, baseball, which has nothing to do with this podcast, LeBron James setting the all-time NBA scoring record is 100% on brand for TV's top five. So, yeah. so, so segment, segment number one of this week is going to be entirely LeBron James. I mean, did you catch the F-bomb he dropped on live TV? That was pretty it was, uh, legendary. It was fine. It was, you know, he, he gave no bleeps. And he was also being very emotional. And also his teammates were in the process of uh, throwing various temper tantrums at the time. So it was all uh, very amusing. One of whom is now a former uh, teammate. But anyway, no one cares about that. Uh, And the NBA trade deadline will be entirely over by the time this goes. And there will be no more second round picks left because they're just getting traded by the handful. So, yeah, let's get to business. Yeah, well, before we dive into headlines, just a, a, a nice little note of thank you for to all of our listeners for your very thoughtful and kind messages about episode 200. We're really proud of, obviously, that episode as well as everything that came before it. So and, now Les- for- and now Leslie is going to get very, very emotional about episode 201. <laughs> yes, that's right, Dan. Leading off in episode 201, headlines. Number one. Up first, CBS is abandoning the Late Late Show franchise and replacing James Corden when the host signs off with a rebooted version of At Midnight from executive producer Stephen Colbert. Former At Midnight host Chris Hardwick is not involved. Dan, your thoughts? I just, 
I don't, I don't know. But I was sort of surprised when I mentioned this on Twitter, how many people were like, ooh, the time was right for a reboot of At Midnight. And that's, that's fine. There, there were a lot of people who have been missing this as a, as a format on their televisions. Um, I watched At Midnight occasionally. I was never a regular viewer, but I definitely, apparently there were 600 episodes of the show. I definitely probably watched over a hundred of them. So yay. It's uh, good format. It, it's a it's a useful and resilient format. Um, I still personally, as a as a preference, would still like to see a woman or person of color in a uh, broadcast late night slot. Uh, but of course, they still have to find a host for at midnight, and I would assume they are probably looking for a woman or a person of color because it is a thing that people understand needs more visibility in the space. Uh, but. Yeah. So anyway, it's this is this is a thing. And uh, the fact that Chris Hardwick isn't involved, at least somewhat raises my interest a little bit. But, you know, anyway, continuing along on the renewal side, Amazon has greenlit a second season of Lisa Joy and Jonah Nolan's The Peripheral. I definitely did watch nearly all the first season. Maybe I should finish it or not. Uh, not surprising in the slightest, Netflix has picked up a second season of that 90s show. I was out on my regular evening walk, and there were a group of 20-somethings sitting in front of Chipotle, and they were gushing about that 90s show. There was there was one 20-something woman who was just recounting the plot of an episode of that 90s show in tremendous and somewhat perplexing detail. Um, but you know, those are, those are the things where you go, okay, this is clearly something where it tapped into a vein of genuine interest. So anyway, continuing, uh, also completely unsurprising, AMC has added a second season to its Anne Rice series, Mayfair Witches, and continuing with not surprising, Paramount Plus is bringing back Harrison Ford and Helen Mirren in the Yellowstone prequel 1923 for a second season. You should also check out our colleague, James Hibbard's. Rather fantastic interview with Harrison Ford. Um, as I said on Twitter, I am not in any way sure if the interview is genuinely introspective and revealing of Harrison Ford, or if Harrison Ford, because part of what he is promoting is a show in which he plays a shrink and whatnot, if he decided to play the role of being introspective for the person for the purpose of the interview. Regardless, it, it was absolutely the closest I have ever come to reading or watching an interview with Harrison Ford where I felt like I was getting insight into Harrison Ford. So either that's a good thing or a bad thing for Harrison Ford. I have no answers. <laughs> Elsewhere, Stars, the Lionsgate-backed cable network that previously rescued Minx following its cancellation at HBO Max, has also stepped in to save the three women after the Shailene Woodley drama was axed at Showtime. We'll have much more on Showtime coming up in a minute. Elsewhere at Stars, a premium cable network is bringing back Spartacus with a new chapter in the series from showrunner Stephen S. DeKnight. Dan, you were a big Spartacus guy, weren't you? I was not a big spor uh, Sporadicus Why guy. Why did I think uh, you Leslie? were? Sporadicus? I don't know. Sporadicus. Uh, I mean, that was like the definition of like the, the heyday of Stars, right? Where like everyone, you had to see boobs within like the first like five minutes, right? It is, it is definitely a show that represented the 
it kind of represented the best version of what stars was trying to be at that point. Uh, but no, it was a show that had a tremendous number of, of fans and a show that I respected on, on many levels. I was always frustrated by the show because it was one of those shows where everyone seemed to acknowledge that it started off really bad and then got really good. And I get annoyed by, <laughs> I get annoyed by shows where I'm told ah, you watch six episodes and you thought it sucked, but you needed to watch the seventh episode. Cause that was the one where it was really good. I, I watched to the point where people were saying that it got good. And I think probably I just need someday to start over again and, and catch up. But I don't know when I would ever feel any desire to do that. But I guess the answer could be when the new Spartacus reboot comes to stars, I could catch up yeah. or something. I mean, it is in development, so it does have a long way to go. So it sounds like they probably approached tonight and said, hey, you want to go back to Spartacus? And he probably said yes. And he's like, okay, great. We're going to put you in development and put out a big press release because, hey, we got to make stars look good because, you know, Lionsgate wants to sell us. You know, we got to bring back the shows that worked and drew all these viewers. And I don't know. My, my favorite memory of, of, of Spartacus is... One press tour, I think, I think it might have been my one of my very first TCAs where I was there as a freelancer, actually, for a lot of LGBTQ press. And I did had a sit-down interview with Lucy Lawless, and she talked for about 15 minutes almost exclusively about the Merkin she wore on the show. And that was just, yeah. <laughs> Definitely, that was a show where everybody wanted to talk constantly about the Merkins. The Merkins, so. if you, and if you don't know what it is, I, I'm sorry for your your SEO <laughs> and your targeted ads that may emerge. <laughs> there is nothing wrong with learning about how that particular piece of Hollywood magic is executed. Um, so yes, learn about Merkins, kids. Continuing with headlines... Uh, Coleman Domingo will star in the Netflix limited series The Madness, and Hugh Laurie has joined the cast of the third season of Apple's Tehran. You may be surprised to discover that is a show that is heading into its third season. Meanwhile, no decision from HBO about the status of Avenue 5, which is the show on HBO that stars... Hugh Laurie. Why did I think that they had just announced that the second season was the last? I heard several people talking about that. I could be told, obviously. I could well, they released the cast options, but uh, I checked okay. in with HBO this week after the Apple announcement and the renewal and the casting here. And they and HBO still says no decision has been made about season three. So Fair there enough. you go. And wrapping up headlines on the franchise front, and you're going to hear that word franchise a lot this episode. Well, hell, why don't we just say it? This episode of TV's Top 5 is brought to you by the word franchise. Amazon has put two more Bosch spinoffs following Jerry Edgar and Renee Ballard in development. The Bosch franchise already includes spinoff Bosch Legacy on Freebie. Following in the footsteps of the success of Winning Time and the recent documentary on Bill Russell, one of the seasons will be titled Chris Bosch. <laughs> also, it's kind of fun to say, too, Bosch. I've never seen an episode, but I mean... Who knows where if these shows are actually going to make it to air, but it's also not surprising. This is like the day after that Amazon, you know, the, or a few days after Amazon announced that the Terminal List is getting a, a franchise treatment after one season. So now there's two shows in that franchise. Hey. I, this this is not shocking, and it sort of has always been funny, and we've discussed it that they decided to do a spinoff spinoff of Amazon's Bosch, spin-off. a spinoff of Amazon's Bosch for Freevee. I'm pausing to let you interject Freebie. Freebie. There we are. Okay. Uh, built around the character of Bosch from the TV show Bosch. So, yeah. Anyway, it's not, it's, it, there's no question that that has been a very, very successful show for the brand. And so, 
Yeah. Sure. Do we have ratings, Dan? <laughs> sorry. All I, all I can do. Sorry, is, not sorry. All, all I can do is shake my hand, my head, and uh, and expirate in some way like a horse uh, saying nay. No, we do not have ratings, but we believe that is sometimes enough in this streaming age, Leslie. Sometimes the only way to know if a show is a hit is to believe it's a hit, or for it to get a spinoff. Or for it to get a spin after season one. Up second, number two. There was a lot of news out of Disney this week, including a major executive overhaul. Leslie, break down the details that were revealed both before, during, and after a really, really boring investor call that we both listened in on yesterday. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't necessary. I mean, it was a, a Wall Street earnings call that was that marked the first for Bob Iger since his return as CEO of Disney. And what he revealed is honestly, it was no surprise given the ouster of his predecessor, Bob Chapek, and his t former top lieutenant, Kareem Daniel. So under Chapek, as you'll you may or may not recall, in 2020, Disney restructured to prioritize streaming. And in doing so, Chapek created this division, DMED. And what does that stand for? Let me look that up really quickly. That stands for <laughs> Disney Media and Entertainment Distribution. And what that did was it, well, it pissed off a lot of creative execs at Disney on the film and TV side because it took things like budget decisions and where content would be, would debut and what projects got greenlit. And it took them out of the hands of the creatives and into this DMED division that was fronted by Kareem Daniel. Well, last year in November, when Disney stunned everybody and ousted JPEG and reinstalled Bob Iger, the following day, Kareem Daniel was gone. And that basically set the stage for what has happened this week at Disney. And it's a reorganization that Iger has done to streamline the company and put the hands, put things like budgets and marketing and ad sales and international and all those things back into the hands of its creatives. So basically, DMED is de-gone. So that was a terrible joke. Uh, was, it yeah, a so, was it even a joke? No, it wasn't. It was just dumb. Uh, so yeah, DMED has been dismantled. That, that's a little bit better, right, Dan? I don't know. Dismantled? Anyway. I don't know. Sometimes you just can't make a joke out of everything. No, and I shouldn't because there are going to be 7,000 layoffs at Disney that amounts to 3% of the workforce. That includes, of course, the big parks division. So it's hard to get a real read on on just how much of the, the creative community will be affected by those layoffs. But what we know now is that Dana Walden, who we talk about a lot on this show, as well as Alan Bergman, who oversees film for Disney, they are your new grand poobahs of Disney entertainment. And what happened this week after Bob Iger's earnings report and, and press conference was the day after he, he outlined exactly how much power Alan Bergman and Dana Walden will have. So they are absorbing all of basically the, the responsibilities that that were that Chapek had splintered off under DMED. So things like ad sales and and so and a lot of the back-end business side of things are coming back under Walden and her film counterpart Bergman. And Disney's new structure is basically built around three separate divisions. So 
Disney Entertainment, that's Walden and Bergman, ESPN, and then the Parks Division. So a lot of streamlining going on here. But the big takeaway is that Dana Walden and Alan Bergman are your new captains of entertainment. They oversee streaming, Hulu, Disney+, Plus, the international side. It is all coming back and being rolled under the entertainment creative. So you're... People like at the, at your studio chiefs and the network toppers, they actually get to make decisions about content and what shows get made and how much they get made for and how they roll out and how they're distributed internationally and how and when. And basically, DMED it has been completely dismantled. And, you know, to answer our friend of the five uh, question, a question from our friend of the five, Chris Hayner, this is yes, this is basically Disney saying, hey, what JPEG did? No bueno. And if you couldn't tell that they weren't impressed by everything that, that JPEG had done, I mean, they ousted him like two weeks before Thanksgiving. And it was just like, they ripped off the band-aid and said, you're gone and we're bringing back the guy that you replaced. Because, yeah, we got we to gotta fix what you fucked up. So... That's basically what's going on. And and yet whatever was or wasn't screwed up, he he got a very, very substantive uh, umbrella uh, or parachute or whatever allows financial to, windfall, financial windfall, severance, yes. buyout. I think it's whatever it going. is. It's it's more than I think of when it comes to much of anything. Uh, but yes, so. Definitely. It was it was interesting. A lot of the things that weren't discussed. Um, Hulu. Hulu would be a thing that was barely discussed. Uh, FX would be a thing that was, I don't think, mentioned at all by name. I think they implied certain things about the quality of the television brand, which very clearly felt like an acknowledgement of FX. But it was not as if they said the FX television brand overseen by John Landgraf. That was very something that was something that was very conspicuously not said, which I found. Yeah, I mean, they didn't name a, a, a ton of executives, you know, during, you know, the the call with it with Wall Street analysts. And obviously, you know, there's a lot of moving parts within this. So I don't think that that the entertainment side of of Walden's structure is going to change that much. You, She still has multiple studios that she oversees, multiple different brands, ABC News, all this other stuff. But I think, to me, the interesting piece is the Hulu of it. You know, Bob Iger went on CNBC this morning and said that he was open to all ideas when it came to Hulu. And of course, that's been a big debate between the value of of that streamer has been a big debate between Disney and Comcast, which still owns a third of it. Disney controls 66%. And if you go back and you look at the original deal when Disney bought a controlling interest in Hulu... They still have until 2024 to decide if they're going to buy out the remaining shares that Comcast has or if they're going to sell it back to Comcast. And if you look at the state of Peacock, we obviously had our great interview last week with Peacock and NBC topper Susan Rovner. If you look at the state of Peacock, while they, yes, they are on a creative hot streak and that is helping to goose subscribers, they still have a long way to go before they're considered part of the actual, I don't know, streaming conversation. They're kind of an afterthought right now, but they they need the scale. Hulu could help them scale up, at least in the, the United States. They neither uh, Hulu is, continues to be domestic only, same as Peacock. But the bigger question is, is if Disney does decide to sell, to sell Hulu, 
what do they keep from it? Do, do they pull the FX stuff and, and put all that, that content over on Disney Plus as they look to scale up Disney Plus to compete with the combined HBO Max and Discovery? And we can talk about that in a second, too. But they, you know, they had Warner Discovery announced this week that they are going to keep Discovery Plus as a standalone service after they merge Discovery Plus with HBO Max. So you'll have one supersized service at a, at a higher price, or you can just watch the unscripted stuff at a lower price. So they're basically trying to do the best of both worlds, at least to start. Uh, but yeah, so what, what happens to Hulu is a great, great question, Dan. It is, and definitely there have been weeks where that Discovery, Discovery Plus, HBO Max, et cetera, news would have been its own standalone topic, but there's just too much stuff this week. So, so yeah. Up third, number three. Last week, we talked about whatever's happening with Showtime or Paramount Plus presents the Showtime network or Showtime colon a Paramount Plus network or whatever the hell it is. Paramount Plus colon. Remember Showtime? (laughs) (laughs) This week, though, we got some strange indications of what the new version of Showtime is going to look like. And the answer is tied to this week's podcast, Word of the Week. Franchise. Yes. Chris McCarthy, when he announced the rebranding of the linear network of Showtime as Paramount Plus with Showtime, which we still don't have a date for, but one of the things that he revealed is that they would be leaning harder into franchise strategies. So what does that mean? Well, we found out a lot this week. Showtime has officially picked up a Dexter prequel series following the character formerly played by Michael C. Hall after he graduates college and when he joins Miami Metro. In terms of the granular details, other characters from the original series are expected to be part of what is called Dexter Origins, obviously with younger versions of those same characters. And those include... Very much alive, Harry, which is, you'll remember, is Dexter's adopted father, and his sister, Deb, one of my favorite characters on TV, played by Jennifer Carpenter. So what we also know is that the extension of the Dexter, the Dexter franchise will also include what is effectively a second season of Dexter New Blood that will follow Dex's son, Harrison, in New York. Other offshoots are being eyed, including a possible Trinity Killer show, although sources say that's just kind of an idea that was floated. I don't think that there's anything official that's happening with that. Meanwhile, friend of the five, Clyde Phillips, who ran the flagship series and was behind New Blood, will be the creative force overseeing that entire franchise. And that was just really one piece of the pie, Dan. I don't know. Do you want to talk about Dexter or should I just keep rambling? I, I'm i just confused by the... It's I'm confused <laughs> is all there is to it because... Yeah, it wasn't exactly a very clear press release. No, I'm more just, I'm more just confused by kind of misreading signs and overcompensating and things like that. You know, it's the, did Dexter New Blood serve It's Showtime's biggest hit. And it doesn't surprise me. And it, and it does not surprise me that it successfully served as the palate cleanser that they wanted it to. And that's what it was there for. It existed yeah. so It was that there to right the wrong. It was there to right the wrong, but not just to right the wrong because people were still making fun of Lumberjack Dexter. It was there to right the Forever wrong because always. somebody in an executive suite said, 
there is there is more meat on these bones. There is more story within this universe, and we can't do a spinoff or a prequel or anything as long as the only thing people associate with the show is is how badly they fucked yeah, up the exactly. ending. Yeah, I mean, and and you know, the Showtime's president of entertainment, Gary Levine, who is still awaiting word on his future with the network. We still don't know have any clarity on on leadership changes that may or may not be part of this whole rebranding of the network and its new franchise direction. But Gary Levine, when he greenlit Dexter New Blood, there are quotes out there. Google it. You can see he fully admits that they did not get the ending of that show right and that this was their opportunity to to rewrite the history books. It's It'll still go down as one of the worst finales. But I thought personally, as a diehard Dexter fan, I thought New Blood was a good ending. And I, and I did ask Clyde Phillips in, in our online Q&A if there would be room to follow Harrison and, and a new chapter of, of Dexter. And he said that he would be open to it as all Showtime had to do was give him the, tell him yes. And that's exactly what's going to happen. But, you know, in, in terms of the larger focus on, on Showtime, the other piece of the, of the franchise strategy is they're developing not one, not two, not three, but four, count them, four spinoffs of billions from the, the show's creators, Brian Kobelman and David Le, uh, Levian. So, Four different shows in the works. Those include Billions Miami, which is set in the world of private aviation. Billions London, which focuses on UK finance. Millions about wannabes in Manhattan. And trillions about the richest people in the world. I literally got tipped on on millions and trillions before this news came out. And I thought my source was making this up because seriously, millions, trillions. Why not just do another spinoff and call it gajillions? I mean, I don't know. I, mean, I get the, they, the idea of this, bit, but they will doing, eventually. <laughs> I get this, but you're you're doing a spinoff of the longest running show on Showtime that has already parted ways with its leading star, Damien Lewis. Sure, I mean, I guess that's what what AMC is doing with Walking Dead. They waited forever and a day to, to do spinoffs and to really lean hard into that larger franchise strategy. But yeah, I mean, this is basically what Chris McCarthy has said, and he obviously now has oversight of Showtime following last year's departure of David Nevins. He said, you know, look, Yellowstone is the model and Yellowstone is the biggest hit on television. We can get into the big, big question marks that are surrounding that in a minute. But how many spinoffs exist in, in the Dutton verse? I don't know. I've lost count. You know, obviously 1923 comes to mind because we just talked about it. But there's multiple spinoffs in that world. They all exist on Paramount+. Plus. And they all get the, the the sneak preview on the linear network, Paramount Network, not to be confused with Paramount Plus with Showtime. But like, just because it works for a big, broad hit doesn't necessarily mean it's going to work for Dexter or for Billions, you know? And, and again, these are shows that have been locked up under a premium cable network, right? You have to subscribe to see them. You have to pay to see them. Yellowstone, part of the reason that it works is you can watch it on Paramount Network for free. It's also a big, broad audience aimed at middle America. So I don't know. There, there's a lot of questions here about if these strategies will work. A lot of the sources that that I spoke with kind of question the strategy as well. You know, it, it seems to make, make sense in at least this uncertain economic time right now. But in terms of a future brand strategy, it doesn't bode well for Showtime. And it's just, I just don't understand the announcing of so much all at once as opposed to, okay, so we're going to go back to the world of Dexter and we're going to continue the world of Billions. Those seem like pretty straightforward things that I completely understand. And, and they're, I, sources say they, they're going to probably do the same thing with the shy. And sure. So why not? And look, it's, I guess, a way of saying simultaneously, 
we're not completely sure what our brand is going to be going forward, but we like some aspects of what it used to be. Uh, you know, like if you talk to if you talk to people in our immediate sphere, the the most buzzed show that Showtime has had in several years is Yellow Jackets, and that's not a buzz, show buzz. that anyone wanted to talk about franchising, at least not this week. And there's no reason at all why horrible things couldn't have befallen several other uh, girls soccer teams over the course of various decades um, that could have been done in multiple, you know, storyline, temporal storyline timeframes. Spin off the '90s set and spin off the present day, and you've got two different Yellow Jacket shows. I, would, I mean, but that I also think, guts what the show really is. No, and I would, I would think work. you would do a, a, an entirely different show with a similar conceit. I think it would be it would be a here is a different show that focuses using two different time frames on a thing that ha- a horrible thing that happened to an insular group of young people, where we're looking simultaneously at the horrible thing, and then twenty years later, I think it is. I think it is. There's no reason why it can't be franchised conceptually, and heaven knows there are things on television that are more <laughs> that have been franchised with less obvious connection, and movies as well. It's just odd to me to see the Showtime brand attempting to be defined by a couple shows that, to me, feel like the past of Showtime, rather than Yellow Jackets, which to me feels like the present of Showtime but apparently not actively the future of Showtime. Like they're not saying we're doing five different Yellow Jackets type shows with the creators of Yellow Jackets, which they absolutely could have done as part of this announcement. And it I mean, would've... and look, renewing Yellow Jackets was literally the first thing Chris McCarthy did when he got to Showtime. Um, let's let's quickly, before we leave this topic, at least touch on the strangeness of what is or is not happening with Yellowstone, because it feels like a thing that is not currently set in stone, but would be a fairly big industry shaping thing if it happened. Yeah, um, our sister site Deadline broke a story this week that Kevin Costner wants to scale back his time commitment to Yellowstone and Paramount execs are considering ending the flagship show in the franchise and looking at instead doing a new spinoff series with Matthew McConaughey set to star. So that is very much on the table. What what sources tell me is that Co- that's very much true that Costner wants to reduce his time commitment to the show. Look, he's no spring chicken either, but he's also prepping a movie that is a passion project of his that he's been trying to get over the finish line for years. That a, he's, mu- I think, a multi-part movie that he's directing and producing and starring, and starring in. Yeah. in. So, it's, so it's, it's a big thing that he's had on his plate. So Yeah, and it's a passion project. And when you've got an actor who has more money than he will ever need for the rest of his life or the rest of his family's life and he's got a passion project let it let the guy do what he wants right so he's so he wants to take a step back and the idea that paramount network would cancel yellowstone the flagship show in the franchise honestly they could recast and, and just pop matthew mcconaughey in there but on a business side it actually makes a shit ton more sense just to cancel it outright do a new show with Matthew McConaughey. So why would that make sense? Why not just put Pop McConaughey in into Yellowstone and instead of Kevin Costner and write find a create a way to write around it? Money. First of all, Bob Backish, the CEO of Paramount Global, sold the streaming rights to Yellowstone to Peacock. And this is well before the show was the massive hit that it is now. And that was part of an old strategy that Backish had where he wanted to basically take these 
take shows, monetize them until Paramount Plus had scale and then bring them back. So you wanted to like expose these shows to other audiences, get people hooked, then greenlight new projects around them and then bring everything back so that it lives on on Paramount Plus. And that's effectively what he's done with Yellowstone. So you've got all those those Yellowstone spinoffs. They are exclusive to Paramount Plus and the streaming rights are Paramount Plus. However, they can't get the streaming rights back from Peacock because Peacock is like, well, we're not stupid. This is a massive hit and we have it exclusively. Why would we, a young service looking for scale, give up exclusive streaming rights to one of the biggest hits on television? Well, Backish and Paramount have tried to get those rights back and Peacock is just like, yeah, go fuck yourself. That's not going to happen. So if they end the flagship show, guess what? Peacock doesn't have rights to a new series starring Matthew McConaughey. Paramount Plus does. So th- it does make a business sense for them to start a new show and end the flagship series if indeed they can't come to terms with Kevin Costner. And look, you know, leaking this to the trades may be a negotiating tactic for, for Chris McCarthy and Paramount, or it could just be 100% true with what's happening and, and, and what's what we know for Costner, which wouldn't surprise me if both were true to some degree. So we're going to wait and see what happens. If they end the flagship, it makes business sense. If Costner wants to do his own thing, it makes sense for him. But look, they're, you know, the the only loser here is maybe the rest of the cast of, of Yellowstone, because I would imagine they would either have to sign new deals with new for new shows and probably renegotiate what are probably I would imagine are growing salaries. So well, Peacock would also be a loser. Oh, Peacock case. would be the biggest yeah, loser so, here, okay. but they still have rights to the original. So if you really want to get into the Dettonverse and say we're three years removed from the end of, of the flagship series. However long, however long Peacock has the rights to yellow to the flagship show, they will continue to have that. But it also makes them less interested in, in having to spend money to keep it if it's no longer an ongoing show. The the including of the McConaughey part of the news was what to me made it pretty clear where the the planting of the story was was coming from. Is that there is that being able to you know simply saying Yellowstone might be in, coming to an end because Kevin Costner wants to do other things that becomes a panicky piece of news and everyone's like ooh what's going to happen this is horrible this is horrible the ability to say that might happen dot, dot, dot. But we have Matthew McConaughey waiting in the wings, ready to put on a cowboy hat. That allows you to go, okay, we're going to be just fine. Kevin Costner can do whatever he wants. We have a a roughly, demo- I mean, not demographically compatible in the sense that Matthew McConaughey is significantly younger than Kevin Costner, but still, you have a star who has a similar meat and potatoes audience willing to follow them. And I think it was it was very important from that side of the story that they were able to include that in the story beyond just Kevin Costner doesn't want to do his two weeks of work anymore on on Yellowstone. Yeah, absolutely. Up next, it's time for our showrunner spotlight segment. This episode is made possible by PWC. A robot may not be coming for your job, but competitors are coming for your market share. At PwC, we pair the right tech with the right solutions to help you gain a competitive edge. Reimagine operations from the cloud, fuel innovation with responsible AI, and detect risks before they become headlines. That's human-led and tech-powered. It's all part of the new equation. Learn more at thenewequation.com. 
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Number four. On the upcoming fourth season of Netflix's You, Penn Badgley's homicidally romantic Joe relocates across the pond for what he hopes will be a European vacation, dot, 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 but it leads to the inevitable mixture of obsession and murder. We're joined this week by longtime You showrunner and creator Sarah Gamble. Gamble's credits include a long run as writer and producer on Supernatural and developing and running sci-fi's adaptation of The Magicians and, of course, again, the full run of You, which aired on Lifetime for its first season before moving to Netflix. Welcome to the podcast, Sarah. Thank you. So before we get into specifics about the new season of You and its future, I, I do want to start with something that's top of mind for a lot of writers right now, and that's your thoughts on a possible WGA strike. You know, obviously that's a big question, but what do you see as the main issue of contention between the Writers Guild and the studios right now before I think we have the first date for the you know the official uh, get down to the business and discuss things uh, going mm-hmm. on between the two? The two sides. Yeah. Wow. You have, uh, congratulations. That's the most difficult question I've gotten in this morning of press. <laughs> um, but, uh, well, first of all, I mean, we have not even really gotten started with these conversations within the guild. I mean, the first meetings are coming up. So I, I will, um, sort of sit back and not jump to conclusions about what, you know, whether there will be a strike or not. I've, I've, um, lived through one in my career and um, I'm hoping that, uh, you know, we always hope to avert it. I mean, in terms of like the, the, the chief issues, to me, I'm not an expert in this. I really, um, you know, I really value the people in our guild who spend the time to, uh, you know, advocate for us and who do all the outreach. But I will say that, uh, you know, as somebody who just talks to a lot of writers at every level, I have to say that writers at every level have something to say about what's going on and everybody has something they're concerned about. And if if I were to say that like globally anything concerns me, it's just that when you are looking at a group of people working and whether they had got into the business this year or have been creating shows for a decade, they have a big problem. Um, that seems like it is time for us to very seriously sit down and work on addressing some of this stuff. You know, for looking at one of the, the things, one of the trends that has emerged in the last few months is all these tax write downs that we've seen in outlets like Warner Brothers Discovery, especially with HBO Max, start to do. And now others have followed suit. And that's yanking content, whether it's library content or canceling fully completed seasons of television and then letting another buyer take it in exchange for a tax write down. How much of that is is on your mind as you head into these negotiations? Uh I mean, that, listen, I, when I, whenever I read an article that something like that has happened to somebody's work, I feel for them so deeply. It's like, I can't breathe. Cause I just imagine that I've spent all of that time and effort and like dozens or hundreds of people have worked on something. Um, but I, I mean, it's just one part of a, an ecosystem that has changed very dramatically in the last few years. It's like, welcome to the mature streaming age. There are a lot of kinks to work out. Um, 
And, uh, you know, if it's it, like this is going to be on a long, long list, a lot of stuff, the WGA isn't it's not really their rice bowl. They're not really supposed to be dealing with it. But like it, it's just a big mountain. And by the way, if you go and talk to somebody who like, a, you know, like a mid-level executive at any of these giant companies, it's not like they're having an easy time either. There have been so many layoffs. There's been so many structural changes. It's just, a, it's a, you know, I have empathy for everybody in this situation. Maybe not, you know, the people who are not listening to this because they're busy being on their yacht right now, but everybody else. <laughs> um, uh, I think it's a, like, uh, it's a really tough, really tough environment. And um, we could do just like a, an hour podcast on on um, how I stay up at night worrying that like things will be canceled or that we'll make them and they'll never see the light of day or they'll disappear from streaming. And um, yeah, that one, uh, everyone I've talked to, it like it hit him in the gut. Yeah, I mean, Dan has been through this too, where, you know, so many things that he's written over the years disappeared from the internet because a site goes under or rebrands or whatever it is. I mean, yeah. it's, it, it really does rip your heart out. But kind of, you know, moving on from the WGA discussion, but one of the things that we've talked so much about during this episode specifically is about franchisation and the, and the continued need for these big tentpole hits and to create spinoffs out of things that even our, our first year shows, right? You know, we recently heard Amazon is doing it, turning the terminal list, which aired one season into a, a two show franchise, you know, but has there, for you, has, has there been any conversation about turning your show, you into a multiple show franchise? I mean, is that something that's on the table and something that you'd want to do? Um, I haven't had any, conversations with the powers that be about something like that. But in a writer's room, people pitch on that all the time. Um, and basically anytime there's a relationship between two characters that they like that aren't front and center, they're like, can we spin them off and just, you know, do uh, like a gritty half hour about Delilah and Ellie forever. Um, and so, you know, it's like, depending on the day, there are 15 spinoffs being pitched. Uh, I mean, what you're talking about with Amazon, with, with any of these companies, it's like they are, it's right back to the, the burning hot center of what we were just talking about. It's like, this is everyone trying to figure out how to make this system of television work. How close in your mind do you ever get to actually hearing one of those pitches and going, actually, that really is something I could take to someone at Netflix and and do <laughs> you, you colon how, whatever you want the spinoff to be? You colon them. <laughs> right. When I was You colon um, us. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh you no, know, some of the ideas are pretty good. And what you're, you know, what you're asking, Daniel, is like the to me, it's the heart of it. It's like in a way, uh, the business uh, listen, the reason I don't have a podcast about the business of Hollywood is because I don't really understand it. I pay people a percentage of the money that I make so that they can understand it really, really well and make sure I understand what I need to. Um, but, uh, for writer, for a writer like me, it's like, what do you burn to write about? And also like, what are you so committed to investigating that you're willing to completely screw up your life for the next year or two, because you're going to do nothing but produce this show. And, uh, it's going to be really hard. And I, I had, um, drinks with my old boss, Eric Kripke, who is, uh, you know, making The Boys and has a spinoff coming. And we immediately, like, this, the first sentence out of our mouth was the same. It's like, we, if we 
do something like that, we want the show to exist on its own merits. Not like the money grab is not interesting to, um, you know, to him or to me, to a lot of writers. And what is interesting is, is there more story to tell? Is there a different story to tell? And like, if it can justify its existence creatively, great. Um, if not, then when the reviews come out, we will all deserve them. Right. But like at, at the same time, too, I mean, you know, have you heard I mean, you as produced by Warner Brothers Television. Have you heard from executives at the studio saying like, hey, we would love a spinoff. What like l serious ideas do you have? I mean, or even from from execs at Netflix for the same. I mean, you know, your you know, your show is among their their top drivers. Mm -hmm. No, I mean, uh, no, maybe it's because I'm I, I have been for the last many months. My head has been down because I've been running the show, but, um, uh, maybe they're just like, don't, don't poke that bear right now. <laughs> you know, they're like now is not the time to talk to her about doing anything, but finishing this. Um, so, but th th so the answer is no, no one has called me about that. I'm relieved for you. <laughs> I mean, the, the words this week of, you know, Showtime's big franchise strategy coming into focus where they announced, I'm sure you've seen, but, uh, in case you haven't, they've, they announced four spinoffs of billions with the titles, and I'm not, I, I'm not making this up. Someone tipped me on this and I actually thought it was a joke, but uh, millions and trillions are among the spinoff ideas uh, in the works over there. And, <laughs> and I really can't make this shit up. Uh, that's amazing. It's like not really, it doesn't feel new to me. Um, before there was TV like this, it's like, this is kind of our childhood in movies too, where there would be four sequels to your favorite movie. And sometimes they were amazing and sometimes they just really felt like cash grabs, but I right. feel like and I mean, you can go back and talk like on, on TV about like all the Norman Lear shows, right? And one begot the other, et cetera. Um, yeah, but it's hard to argue those aren't great shows. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, so yeah. Well, yeah. but on the other hand, you spent you spent a long time at Supernatural. You mentioned Eric Kripke, and that was a that was a show that for years and years and years the CW kept wanting different spinoffs, mm -hmm. different franchises. And now, of course, there is the Winchesters, but for a long time. There was a process of not finding the exact right thing. What was it like from the inside kind of having that mandate, but not necessarily knowing what exactly the right thing was at any point? Maybe it's because at that time it was the same people were talking. It was Eric and it was me, and neither of us were going to do anything in a cynical way. Um, so, you know, until the right idea comes then, you know, nope. I, I, when you're, sometimes when you're working in a world like that, it's like, it's, you know, the supernatural world is so, just so durable. I mean, they made 1 billion episodes of that show because it was a fully realized universe that had a ton of stories to tell. So um, I also understand why it's like you want to keep living in that world, but you want to explore a different kind of story with different kinds of characters. And I'm sorry, I'm not as hard on this as you guys are, but I just, I, like, I'm not, I'm not cynical either way about spinoffs. I feel like sometimes, you know, sometimes that's the way you get to tell the story you've been burning to tell. You know, the season is split into two different parts with the first mm -hmm. airing, of course, is now the first half is now available on Netflix and the second's coming next month in March. Do you think this is Netflix experimenting with a new rollout strategy or was this kind of a creative decision that, that you and your staff made? The idea came from Netflix. They have been doing that with some of their shows. I think the one people know them about the most is probably Stranger Things. Um, and so they approached us. We were very much in the middle of everything. The whole season had been written and they said, um, you know, this is an option. They didn't, they certainly didn't force it on us. They were just like, you know, we were, we were thinking about this for your season 
And we know you have this, um, you know, mystery structure. And do you feel like this would work? And it just so happened that the structure split cleanly down the center of the season. Probably because Greg Berlanti and I have written many a mid-season cliffhanger for old school television. It's just like, I can't help it. <laughs> like I need to, um, you know, proverbially burn something really big down in episode five of 10. Um, I'm saying proverbially, you guys, because I know that not everybody has watched it yet. I'm trying not to spoil what happens in episode five. But now that I've said <laughs> that, everyone knows, yes, something burns in episode five. <laughs> Well, I can see how the fifth episode is absolutely a, a transitional point for the season on a narrative mm -hmm. level. From your perspective, can you define tonal or pace differences that you would want to describe between part one and part two? In episode one of the season, we present you with a murder mystery whodunit, and we will uh, tell you who the killer is at the end of the first half. I think I'll just tell people that, right? It's like we actually solve the mystery mid season. The, the 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 season was never built to just be a whodunit. I admire those. I also have now discovered they're very hard <laughs> to um, keep going over multiple episodes. The idea was always to search for um, this killer and then find them and have some chats, have a conversation, like shift the the show into um, something that can only be done if Joe knows who he's talking to. We'll definitely talk more specifics in a yeah. bit, but we got more general stuff too. Uh -huh. So given, you know, the, the big shifts that you're doing here, do you envision a, more seasons of this that you're looking at? Or do you have an, a, an idea for how much more life is left in this show? Um, I have like a blanket superstition policy about being specific about how many seasons something will ever run. Um, again, it came from Supernatural and the way we used to talk about how many seasons it would run. But uh, the, the non-numerically specific answer is that we, we have an idea for season five and uh, that we're excited about. And also, it was never anyone's intention to just run this one into the ground. Um, when we're done, we'll be done and we'll pack it up and it'll exist on Netflix for everybody to enjoy. And, uh, that would knock on wood. Yeah. Knock on wood. <laughs> uh, she's laughing cause she has to laugh. I don't know. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, even in the early conversations with Penn, we were like that, you know, the idea is not to just like, um, you know, crank out episodes forever. It's to feel like we have told the complete story. And I, I, though I feel like tonally we're very different and we are really not trying to sell Joe as any kind of a hero with a straight face. This is a show that is in the tradition of these single lead shows with a guy who does increasingly bad things. Um, we could name two or three off the top of our head. And the, the beautiful thing about it is that when his arc is complete, so is the show. But sort of the, the difference is, and you talked about how Supernatural had this engine that was especially in the beginning when it was basically a supernatural creature of the week show. It became obviously more mythology-driven as it went along. But it mm -hmm. had that energy, that that specific engine and structure that presented itself in a broadcast way as this could be a 200-episode series. And then it went much longer than that. Mm -hmm. Whereas this, to me, because it is so very, not mythology in the same way driven, but it's very narratively driven, to me, it feels like in a different kind of way. Like, it, like the first season... Already you were like, could this be done a second season? The second season, it was like, could it be done a third? 
I don't know that anyone ever felt that way about Supernatural. You always felt it could be done another time. When did you become convinced or confident that it could actually be done, that you could be done a second season, a third season? Uh, the first couple of seasons we were really clear on because a second book was coming. So we knew. Um, and when we pitched it, we said, you know, new world, new love each season. Um, different facet of looking at obsession and as we got into uh, starting to really write it, we realized, okay, so we are going to do a different kind of a romance or romantic comedy each season. And then we are going to do a different kind of thriller each season. We're going to lay them on top of each other. And that's going to be what makes the the picture 3D, if you will. Um, so we, in order to sell the show, we pitched out options for how this could go um, a few seasons down the line. But yeah, you're absolutely right. It's like um, Supernatural is one of the most, in many ways, the most successful example of procedural television from the earlier part of the 21st century. Uh, and it, it came out at a time when any channel you landed on was like a cop or a lawyer or a doctor who had a job to go to. And that's what you were following was the job they did every day. And because Nobody had any interest in making a show where somebody got killed every week by Joe Goldberg. We we signed up for the version that really lives and dies on what the character arc is doing. And so we've, we've been tracking this in a multi-season kind of way, um, but uh, never with the expectation that it would become something that would just stamp itself out over and over and over again. From a business perspective, in terms of the different locations, how much are you guys, you know, selecting where you want to be based on what kind of tax incentives you can get for filming. Because, I mean, that's obviously one of the appeals here is, you know, you can make the show on a different budget every season. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, it's it's always part of the conversation because we are not one of those shows that's just like rests on a pile of money. We have a real, not only do we have a, a like a real television budget, it's like, think back to when we were in season one, the show was built on a budget for a lifetime, a basic cable <laughs> outlet. Um, so yeah, uh, like these things do come into consideration. And um, now that we're, I, I always feel like whenever we talk about anything production related, it's like any challenge that you think about making television, just multiply it by five to start the conversation in the era of COVID. And that changes from month to month to month. And it, I'm sure it's different for people who are going into production now than a few months ago. But Every aspect of producing has been touched by the last couple of years. Uh, so the least you can do for yourself is to go to a city that has some infrastructure, has a deep well of crew, people who know how to make things, um, a good acting pool, and ideally some kind of tax incentive. Yes. <laughs> but you're still not going to rush to have the next season in Shreveport just because it happens to be sh uh, cheaper <laughs> to take Joe to Shreveport. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I mean, when it, when you see, uh, God, I don't know how to talk about this in a non-spoiler way at all, except to say, uh, yeah, I mean, the, you'll know what the next season would be when you see the end of this season. Like we tell you, we tell you what the idea is. On the other hand, when Not we left, <laughs> on the other hand, when we left at the end of last season, mm -hmm. it was Joe skulking around Paris looking for the most recent, uh, love of his life. So that at least theoretically could have opened the door to a Parisian season of the show. Was there any conversation about that? Or did you know London was where you wanted to be? 
there was conversation about Paris. We assumed the same thing when we left him there. And um, Greg Berlanti's company, you know, makes the flight attendant and has a lot of experience with going to several places in the course of a season. Um, there was a practical sort of producerial conversation that that started to edge us over to London. But also, the more we, probably more importantly, the more we talked about the themes of the season and the kind of people we wanted to have him fall in with, the more we realized that like the beating heart of this old money aristocracy as viewed through an American lens, the people we really think about, it's like, you know, it's Harry and Meghan who are dominating the news cycle in the United States, not like name me an aristocrat from France, uh, you know, with, with all respect to French people. Um, most Americans cannot answer this question so we realized it's like bring people from all over the place. Like we auditioned actors, German actors, French actors, like people from all different places. But let's situate it in the like the the little beating heart of which is like where our little colony came from. Personally speaking, I really wanted to see the the Joe Goldberg, Emily in Paris crossover. Um, same. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> I feel like the internet gives us some some still photos from that um, season that never was, but yeah. Also, that was probably the safest thing you could have said following the sentence. All due respect to French people, I was I was very <laughs> I was very worried about where that was going to go, but instead you did you said absolutely nothing dangerous, so don't worry. Well, you know the thing about it is that like I'm I'm really conscious. I I think most of us are very conscious that. Um, Americans have a reputation for uh, U.S. centrism and a, and a sense of arrogance that, like, we're the center of everything and, and a lot of judgment about foreign cultures. And we didn't approach the season like that. Personally speaking, I've never really had that because my parents are immigrants to this country and um, I was surrounded by people who were not from here for my whole life. So I've always kind of felt that we're part of a a bigger world. That's why I... So frequently make sure I say this because I am I am thinking about the audience that's not necessarily American. And I really do want to put that asterisk on it. Like we didn't make the season to make fun of you. We did this to make fun of an American called Joe Goldberg. No relation. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, the show originally was developed for Showtime and then it moved, bounced around a little bit. It, mm -hmm. You know, obviously it aired season one in Lifetime. They were they renewed it before it premiered and then. All of a sudden, you wind up at, at Netflix, where you <laughs> become this monster hit. What, first of all, what have you learned about linear viewing versus streaming and the way people consume content today? And and what what's your big takeaway? You know, for from the development process of of all that movement. Uh, the, you know, there isn't in terms of the differences in how people watch it. Uh, functionally speaking, what we did wasn't really any different. Like we we broke season one with a lot of attention paid to making sure reveals and questions and mysteries and people falling off buildings happened at the right points in the episode. Like I've been doing the job of trying to keep you from um, going away during a commercial break uh, earlier in my career. So so moving to streaming is actually not that different. It's like we want you to say, yes, I want to watch another episode. The way to do that is the same. It's to throw something out there at the very end of the episode that you really, really want to know more about. Um, yeah. What? Wait. So ask me more of that question. I can't remember what else you asked. I mean, what have you learned about the about the way 
people consume this. I mean, you've already kind of answered that part, but, uh -huh. you know, and in, in terms of the way that that television gets made and the way you develop, I mean, obviously you're focused on this now, but I'm sure, you know, you're, you've done so many other things in your career. I mean, the next show that you create, whether it's a spinoff of this or not, have the lessons on how, how the, the TV ecosystem functions with things being moved from premium cable to basic cable to streaming. Has uh -huh. that changed the way you want to develop? Yeah. The most fundamental lesson I learned when, you know, we developed it and then Showtime didn't care for our take and we parted friends and then Lifetime and then they canceled it. And it's like, you really can't control any of that stuff that you, you're wasting your energy if you're trying to game out what's going to happen to any of your development. The only thing you can do is just um, get in bed with the right partners and um, fight for what you think is important about the show. And uh, that, so all it did was just reinforce that because I was really thrilled that we were going to have this series living on Lifetime because the series was subverting the Lifetime movie in a way that I thought was really direct, that they were so game for. What a lovely group of executives they were. And, uh, you know, and then didn't get great numbers, moves to Netflix, over indexes with men. <laughs> you know, it's like, I don't know. We're telling the same. We're telling the same thing. And um, right now, we're watching um, viewing habits move a little bit back towards the center. I think um, so. Uh, you know, in terms of what I'll do next, I think that what this era we're in kind of affords um, creators to some extent, if you don't get stuck in a mini room, I guess, is that you can like pick a lane that makes sense for the project you're making. It really makes sense for some projects for there only to be one or two writers to write the whole thing and go shoot the whole thing. And a more classic writer's room, um, having production and writing happening at the same time, that makes sense for a different story. So it's more about like you can engineer, ideally you engineer the production process to suit the specific problems of writing and producing the show you're trying to make. Yeah, I, I do want to touch really quick, Dan, on on the dig at mini rooms. I know you've, I've heard that from a lot of different sources too. Mm -hmm. For our listeners who may not know what that means is, you know, from what, what have you heard from your staff about the mini room? Because everything that I've heard is a lot of these networks are launching these mini rooms and then they review all the scripts that that get get turned out and then they pass on something and it or it's a cheap way of getting of doing development but not mm -hmm. fully paying the same price right without giving having yeah. to give a, a a a serious commitment or a kill fee if it doesn't actually go i think the knocks on the mini room that you're listing are the you know the concerns about it i also think though and by the way, I don't like, I, I want you to say yes or no. I don't want to write a backup script. Ideally, I don't want to do risk, like say yes or no, right? Some of that is like, do you have the power to say, I, I just want a yes or no, and you can still be in development with these people. It's sort of, it's case specific for the person who's creating the show. Um, I will say I have not been in a mini room. I've been busy on this show, but a lot of the writers I work with have, and it isn't a cut and dry thing for them. They have done, many of them have done mini rooms because the other thing that's happening is these um, uh, short orders, right? Which are just orders now that aren't 22 episodes or even 13, they're more like eight that kind of chop up a writer's year on staff in an unwieldy way where they are 
beholden for to a show for longer and then they um uh don't get paid quite as much sometimes and then they don't they they have to kind of make their year and to sign up to be in a in a smaller room or a mini room or help with development in some way for four weeks or 12 weeks or whatever that would be um sometimes it slots in really well and it enables them to have some amount of work happening while they wait to hear if the next season of the show in first position gets picked up is this a show that because of the different genre elements maybe either requires or benefits more from a bigger writer's room so that someone might be more comfortable with the rom-com aspects, someone might be more mm-hmm. comfortable with the thriller aspects, someone might be more comfortable with the mystery mechanics? Is this a show that needs a bigger room in your mind? Uh, bigger than a couple of people, yeah. <laughs> and uh, the writer's rooms just grow over the years also. Um, but. Yes, I think, uh, you know, by the way, I think you would probably say that about a lot of shows. The, you know, The Magicians, the last show I did was also like 15 different shows at the same time. And so, yes, we needed all of those different kinds of people, but um, kinds of writers. But I also, uh, I don't really like lead with those kind of questions when I'm hiring people. (laughs) So some of that you just discuss, like you kind of discover when you're breaking the, you know, you know, one or two people might have a procedural on, on their resume, but you really find out who's good at plotting a murder mystery when you're all in the room. And that's the person who keeps uh, pointing out the big holes in the logic. And you're like, okay, all right, we're glad you're here. (laughs) It's more about how their, you know, their brain works than any particular experience necessarily. Yeah. Every room seems to have a logic police. (laughs) Yes. Right. Yeah. The thing that our room has generally is like a, is like a, a vast, spectrum of how team joe various people are that day it's like there's always going to be somebody in the room who's just like can we throw him down a well um he is a horrible person and how can we write such a hateful person and there's somebody else that's like i don't know i think he's being kind of cool right like he's so sweet like let's keep going <laughs> so um and by the way, people will switch position it's like then everybody has coffee and it's the opposite well, okay, continuing with that, one of the biggest narratives going back to the first season was people tied to the show, Penn in particular, pushing back against the internet's boyfriendization of of Joe. And he he repeatedly said over and over again, you're not supposed to be falling in love with this character. I suspect probably that did not have uh, as much of an impact as he might have hoped. From your perspective, looking at reactions to the past couple seasons, has that continued in the same way or have people finally maybe to some degree figured out that maybe you wouldn't want to date Joe Goldberg? I think even in season one, when people were tweeting, kidnap me, Joe, they were being a little bit funny. They were, they knew what show they were watching. I, I give them all the credit for that, I think. And, and, and so um, Penn was like, if you're, if you're serious, I need to say this. And if you're not serious, I need to play along. Right. So it was, it's sort of, the same conversation either way. I don't know. I I mean, at this point, um, I think the show we're making is pretty clear. It was, um, it was actually pretty gratifying from the beginning. It's like you put a show out that it has a a very subversive central element. You hope that when people watch it and start writing about it, that they say anything about that at all. Like maybe you didn't do it right. Maybe they're going to watch it and be like, why are you positing that this guy is, (laughs) you know, um, the hero of the story. Um, but from the beginning, I think when people saw the show, they they got it. They understood what it was. And and yet 
you know, making season four, I'd be in post and I'd be like, I just really love him. Like I'm the worst. I'm the worst. I'm the worst. I I think I might be the worst because every time I watch this show, I cannot separate the fact that that I'm watching Woodchuck Todd from EZA. Because I love that movie so much and Penn in that movie so much. This is why Penn is p- so perfect for this role. Everything about his persona, his vibe, like what you've seen him in before, he's a good guy. Um, and when you, you know, are having coffee with him in life, he's the most thoughtful person you've talked to all week. Uh, so his discomfort with it is part, I think, of the magic of how the role works. Has your perspective shifted over the years writing this as to whether or not Joe is actually capable of change? Uh, It has and it hasn't. I mean, he has at least tried to change a few times. This is a central theme of this season is can he um, can he redeem himself? Can he be redeemed? And uh, he comes to London, uh, especially, uh, you know, after the events of the first episode, he's very much like I, I I do need to write the karmic scales here a little bit. And to to that point, I'm going to, you know, settle in and teach English, you know, literature, American literature and um, stay out of trouble. And one of the, um, you know, locals that he meets in the first half is this author, Reese, who has written a whole memoir about um, having done shady things earlier in his life and having a difficult childhood and rising above it and working to become a better person. And so the, uh, that was the that was the chat that started us off every Monday morning. And I'll tell you something that kind of um, troublingly meta that was happening frequently. It's like we we made you right before this version, the last five years of Me Too. Like Me Too exploded when we were in post. Like we added a, a text about Harvey Weinstein because that was happening as we were finishing episode one. So by the time that the show was out, everyone was talking about Me Too in this fresh conversation way. It was the, everyone was optimistic about it and the conversation had changed and it was new. And now here we are several years later and we're making a season about uh, an objectively horrible man who is going to do what it takes to redeem himself. And every time I check the news, it's like some other guy who, you know, faced a consequence. We're now talking about what he needs to do to redeem himself. And he's, um, you know, either enacting and performing or actually embodying the behaviors of redemption, right? And so I feel like I just watched the whole wave of that movement as we've been making the show about this guy. So as long as Joe Goldberg is still out in the streets, cancel culture isn't a real thing? <laughs> I just hate the phrase so much that I can't answer the question. <laughs> and I heard I heard you very clearly go with consequence as the word that you were choosing there. I, I appreciated that that was the way you were going. <laughs> I don't know when it happened exactly, but it's like you can't say the word cancel without people. It's it's become political, like partisan in a way that is so far away from what we're talking about, which is we have made a show about a guy who stalks women violates their personal lives um, and also has killed at least 10 people coming into season four. Uh, to me, that's not a partisan issue. But <laughs> so I so I avoid language that will, um, you know, end up with, I don't know, think pieces that use the word woke, you know. <laughs> 
but as but as you're thinking about you know the what what comes next obviously you have ideas for season five and there's a little seed at the end of season four that kind of points to that direction but my question for you is does the show end like can joe goldberg survive this series or does the series end when joe dies um that question is a spoiler (laughs) (laughs) little bit little bit uh the the central conversation that the conversation that we have among the writers between Greg and I, and a lot with Penn is about the fact that it would be nice to end this arc with some form of justice. And to our earlier conversation just now, guys like this don't usually see a lot of justice from the world. Uh, so we would have to be, you know, that's actually kind of challenging to plot. Like, how does Joe Goldberg go down in a world that, like, he's been braining people with bricks in broad daylight for years. Um, and he's cute and he looks right and he gets away with it. And so the deeper question that we, we frequently pitch on this in the writer's room is just, so what's real justice? Like what would, what would hurt him the most? Um, and then are we going to do that to him or not? (laughs) Watching this season, I feel like I'd, I've always been comparing the show to Dexter to some degree. I feel like this season I was more frequently comparing it to Succession and to White Lotus instead of Dexter. I'm, I'm curious if you feel like you're engaged in the same sort of satirical conversation about wealth and privilege as those shows are. It is definitely in the collective unconscious. There was a moment a year and a half ago or whatever, two years ago, when we all hooked in and the same, we all went to bed and like Ryan Johnson was wandering around <laughs> in the collective unconscious. And then like Mike White was over there. And, um, uh, and then here I am with a show that does not have uh, the resources to have helicopters like succession does and yachts. And, um, but this is a hundred percent the time we're living in. I mean, to me, it reached like an apex of obviousness when Elon Musk bought Twitter Um, where it was like the public-facing billionaire, this new sort of, uh, you know, information age iteration of monarchy, almost like, uh, you know, succession, right? I mean, it's like, remember when we were a democratic republic? It's just like not what we're even thinking about anymore. It's like the noise is around the wealth disparity, which has gotten, by the way, tremendously worse in the last couple of years. So, um, what writers do is they, uh, you know, we sort of swallow what we're what we're taking in in the news and what what makes us feel things, and then we start writing about it. And Joe has a lot to say about this very subject. I mean, the killer is called the Eat the Rich Killer. We are definitely on the same wavelength with these other shows and films. Which world or ensemble would you rather see Joe weasel his way into? The world of Succession or the world of White Lotus? Uh, <laughs> um. I always want to pair him up uh, or like face him off against the most formidable enemy, the person who's the strongest and the smartest. And um, so by the time, you know, Shiv is fully grown and matured on succession, you know, when she has fully come into her own, she's had just enough therapy to detach from the (laughs) father issues that have been holding her back. Then that is the, um, show I want to watch. 
That is also the show that I would like to watch. Um, mm-hmm. You you mentioned you mentioned Ellie's character. That would be the Jenna Ortega character. You guys, of course, had her before she was the biggest star in all of Netflix land. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm curious. Each season has, in Joe's wake, left one or two people alive, just sort of out there. As you look to whatever the eventual end is, do you have plans for baby Henry? Do you have plans for Ellie? Or are they just kind of back pocket and maybe you'll get to them if you if you want to or need to? Uh, the, it's never an accident when somebody is still out there. That's part of the story is that he doesn't tie up every loose end. And, and also, um, and I mean, I say this in like a kind of um, in quotes, but like he has such a soft spot for Ellie, it's like he, there's a there's a bit of um, you know almost weakness about the for him for for a killer like just being the best killer that he can be because he would rather help her and let her live her life and it's like well that was a choice you made and now she's out there uh, so we actually we had um, story for Ellie last season and um, we adore Jenna and it is like I've never been less surprised about anything in my entire life than watching the. Um, Jenna Ortega supremacy of 2023, but uh, uh, she, you know, we were we were talking about it. We were starting to work on it, and then um, she got. We heard she was doing some other little show, and she wasn't going to be able to schedule it. So, um, you know, if we get to if we get to see her again, we would love to. I, I won't even talk about the story. I'll just say it would be very cool to have the character back and to have Jenna back for a bit. You know, we do like to end these interviews with the same question: What have you been watching and enjoying outside of cuts of your own show? I'm not going to introduce anyone to anything they haven't already seen. I finally had the time to watch Abbott Elementary. That is a very good show. I recommend it. Um, and then the last uh, the last uh, series that I checked out was Fleischman is in Trouble. And I was I was really impressed with it. I'm, I am charmed by the shows that are just sort of like, created and structured on their own terms. You know, it's a limited series. It's not trying to be television like television you've seen before. It very much is telling, I'm told it's very much telling the story of the book. I haven't read the book, um, but I I enjoyed having to like um, watch episodes from different points of view, kind of feeling like it would take a while to find out what was really going on. And it does, spoiler alert, it takes a while on that show. And then eventually you find out what's really going on. Um, but uh, that's a good one. I recommend that one. And you can go back and listen to our interview with the showrunner and author of Fleischman is in Trouble back in episode 193. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us. Um, thanks for having me. It's nice to talk to you both. The first half of season four of You premiered February 9th, with the second part dropping March 9th on Netflix. Number five. As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics' Corner. Obviously, we've got the Super Bowl, Dan, but uh, not a whole lot of counter-programming. Elsewhere, you've got Gina Rodriguez returning to broadcast on ABC's Not Dead Yet. You just heard our interview about the new season of You on Netflix. Hulu debuts the docuseries Stolen Youth. HBO Max drops the Valentine's Day special of Harley Quinn. And yeah, the Super Bowl, which has also led HBO to release episode five of The Last of Us early on streaming. So, Dan... Your picks? Yeah, it's it's interesting because normally, or typically, I guess, we talk about the Super Bowl and then there's whatever the level of enthusiasm is for the post-Super Bowl episode. And that, of course, leads to all of the inevitable conversations about how those shows out of the Super Bowl time slot have traditionally 
either not been successful long term or have been kind of flash in the pan bumps for shows and everyone goes, ah, but remember how great the alias post Super Bowl episode was and we all nod politely and go yes or there was Kyle Chandler and Christina Ricci and the bomb uh, from the Grey's Anatomy Super Bowl episode and we nod uh, but instead this year Fox decided to give the slot to next level chef from Gordon Ramsay which is just not a particularly interesting thing to talk about so <laughs> so whatever I, I hope that makes somebody happy um, let's, let's kind of go backwards here a little bit, uh, for things that have aired during the week. Um, Not Dead Yet on ABC has already premiered, premiered on Wednesday with first two episodes. And it is, of course, uh, Gina Rodriguez's first regular TV series gig since Jane the Virgin, which was, of course, a great, great show. If you have not watched it, you should do that. And the premise of the new show is that she plays a journalist who followed a boyfriend to London and apparently stopped working entirely and then returned. And now the only thing she can do is get a job working at the same newspaper she was at before, but the only thing she can do is write obituaries. And then because people saw that Ghosts was really successful for CBS, they went, oh, what if the people she was writing obituaries for showed up as ghosts and helped steer the obituaries, but also taught her important lessons about life or something? Uh, the first two episodes, as I said, have aired, and they're pretty bad. And Woof. they're pretty bad, and it's interesting because they're pretty bad, and they were already reconceived, rewritten from the original pilot. Like, the original pilot, half of it was tossed out, and it was recast and reconceived. So you've got these new episodes that are very bad and have no particular personality or tone. This, to me, very much should have been a 42-minute broadcast hybrid uh, in the same vein as So Help Me Todd or, you know, just countless different ABC and and CBS, for the most part, comedy-drama hybrids. It's a, a fairly easy thing to do. And doing it as a 22-minute sitcom makes it so that there's no particular characterization that's possible to come in for Gina Rodriguez's character. Also, the ghosts have no particular characterization, even if they're played by very recognizable people. So you had Martin Mull in the first episode. You had Brittany Snow. Uh, no, Brittany Snow's in the third episode. It's Mo Collins who's in the second. Still, you got some guest stars, so whatever, even though they have no characters. What's interesting to me about the show, and only limitedly interesting, and I don't know how much I'm actually recommending it in that respect, is that for all of the reconsideration and adjusting of the show that was done mid-pilot, it becomes an entirely different show at the end of the fourth episode. It suddenly starts taking the thing that the main character is doing somewhat seriously, somewhat dramatically, and I, I don't know if it's a a good show in those episodes, but it's definitely a better version of the show. And it's so stupid in this day and age to be expecting anybody to stick with a bad broadcast sitcom for three or four episodes for it to become a different show 
that they may not like. Like, if you liked the first two episodes of Not Dead Yet, A, I don't really understand that because they're not really very good. They're in no way funny and none of the characters are the least bit interesting. But if you liked those characters in that situation and this show, it does become a different show and it's not this show anymore, starting basically in episode, end of episode four into episode five. So if you liked the show, it's a different show and you're not going to be happy. And if you didn't like the show, it's a different show, but you're already going to be predisposed to disliking it because the first few episodes are bad. It's it's confusing to me. And and I like Gina Rodriguez as a performer. I think she is much better suited to the second version of the show. I don't think she is a natural sitcom lead. I think she's a natural dramatic lead with comic beats, which is what the show is basically in episode five. The show is so full of people who are really, really good scene-stealing performers. So you have Hannah Simone as her best friend. Loved Hannah Simone on, on New Girl. Doesn't really give her much to do. Uh, you have Lauren Ash as the privileged new boss of the paper, the daughter of the owner. Loved Lauren Ash on Superstore. She doesn't have much to do. Uh, you have L Rick Glassman as the main character's roommate, as everyone knows, uh, we on this podcast are fans of, um, why am I forgetting? As we see it, as we on see it Amazon. I was, was going to say It's Like You Know, which is a totally different show that hasn't existed for a long time and only existed for one season. Anyway, that was a show? Yeah, It's Like You Know. Uh, you know. It existed. Anyway, Rick Glassman, who's, who's really good, doesn't have much to do here. Uh, bunches of people who, it's kind of a, a supporting scene stealers rogues gallery all people who could have had more to do in the 42-minute version of this show that really somebody should have in the development process recognized was what this show was supposed to be. They didn't. Yeah, hard, hard for me to recommend because I can't honestly say that the show that this becomes in episode five is suddenly a great show. It's just a show that I felt had potential, whereas I don't feel like the show this is in the first three episodes has much, much potential at all. So... Uh, that is um, that is not dead yet on ABC. You just heard our interview with Sarah Gamble, and the first half of the fourth season of You is on Netflix, and it it's it's basically You, which is, is sort of wonderfully compulsively watchable, backing dramatically backing characters into a corner and getting them out in kind of sometimes awesome, sometimes ridiculous ways. Uh, always. Always entertaining, always a show designed to just be torn through in as little time as possible. I'd fallen behind and I watched basically the last two or three episodes of season two and the entirety of season three uh, in a binge last year at some time. And it's a totally enjoyable show in that case. Uh, the London setting is nice. I am always pro anything that is a London setting of a show. Uh, I also loved Charlotte Ritchie as the new potential love interest this season. She plays a uh, a new British character uh, named Kate, who, not surprisingly, Joe becomes very curious about. And really and truly, I just want to tell people they need to watch Feel Good, uh, which has two seasons on Netflix, because Charlotte Ritchie was just wonderful in that as well. Uh, lots of other interesting people. And again, London setting nice and fun and good for the show. And uh, it does build to, it doesn't really build to a cliffhanger. It just builds to a pivot to the season at the end of the first segment of episodes. And then it'll be back for the second half next month. No reason why they shouldn't do it. 
Also, already released this week, you have HBO Max's Valentine's Day special episode of Harley Quinn, which is a favorite show of ours. It's from Friends of the Five, uh, Justin Halperin and Patrick Schumacher, of course. Uh, they discussed the second season of the show with us, third season of the show with us back. When did they discuss that, Leslie? That would be back in episode 184 from September 9th of last year, where they also talked about Abbott Elementary. Indeed, they've had a uh, they had a good fall and winter those two, and the uh, the special is very very good. It is it is wonderfully raunchy. It has a it has a guest star who I would also describe as a as a friend of the five. Um, I'm not gonna not gonna spoil that who who it is because it's someone who appears towards the end of the episode. But it is a a multi time former TV's top five guest, so I will not spoil anything there. Yes, uh, the guest star in the Harley Quinn special is Chris Hainer. Uh, I kid, I kid. I'm just seeing if Chris made it to this part of the uh, the podcast. Um, but anyway, I particularly like it because it is a, it is a Bane-centric episode, and the episode uh, exposes certain common interests, fascinations, peccadilloes that Bane and I share when it comes to are sources of personal irritation. That is all that I will say. But anyone who follows me on Twitter um, and knows the things that irritate me and that I complain about frequently will no doubt watch the Harley Quinn special and be like, ooh, that must make Dan happy. And the answer, in case you're curious, is yes, it does, or it did. Um, and then finally, of new things premiering, Hulu has the documentary series Stolen Youth, uh, which is about, and you may recall, this story from having gone around in recent months, the Sarah Lawrence sex cult, I guess would be the easiest way to put it, though I'm still not sure what the numbers are that allows you to call something a cult. Not for me to make the rules. Uh, anyway, it's a story of uh, basically psychotic uh, con artist Larry Ray, who moved in with his daughter's friends in a Sarah Lawrence dorm and basically turned their lives upside down. It is it is absolutely crazy stuff. It is a it is a three part documentary. Uh, again, anyone who follows me on Twitter knows that my frustration about three part documentaries and how they are either two hour movies that were not edited sufficiently or else they were four to six part docuseries that didn't have enough information. This one probably is halfway in between those things. It, the episodes are all long. They're all over an hour. So it's it's pretty close to a four-hour thing already. There's a lot of context to me that feels like it's missing. And part of it has to do with the fact that, of course, Sarah Lawrence as a university is not going to cooperate with this. Why would they? It does not make anybody associated with the university look particularly good. Uh, but... A lot of the people involved in the sex cult, which again is a very, very small sex cult, um, are on camera and are very candid and are it's it's a very interesting examination of cult psychology and just how brainwashing works. And because it was filmed over many, many years, you can actually see both the brainwashing in process and the deprogramming in process. And I think that's very, very interesting. I saw an article that I didn't read, but I saw the headline saying that the filmmakers did interview Larry, the cult leader, and decided not to use it, which is an interesting idea because I can completely understand why their point would be that he really just doesn't need a 
platform. There's nothing to be gained from giving him a platform. Having his voice feels like it would be important, but I fully respect deciding, look, we just don't need to hear from this guy anymore. Plus, there is so much filmed and audio recording of the entire brainwashing process, because part of what he did to these kids was he recorded them giving these horrible false confessions of things that he coerced them into saying as part of his mind control. And this stuff is all recorded, which is crazy. The whole thing is crazy. It is very watchable. I, I did have frustrations about how it was structured at times. I think sort of stepping back the entire second episode is verging on unnecessary, uh, which is part of why I feel like it could just as easily have been a two hour episode. I think the first I think the third episode is really fascinating because it's the one that gets into the heads of a couple of the people whose heads were most warped. The second episode, a little bit less so, and thus it wasn't interesting to me quite as much. But I think people will go through this because people do love them some uh, some cult documentaries. So, uh, so yeah, that's Stolen Youth on Hulu. Um, I think I mentioned last week that while I was sick, I was catching up with Extraordinary on Hulu. I did finish the first season of that. Really, really fun show. Only eight episodes, half-hour episodes apiece. Uh, sends the show off in a lot of very, very interesting episodes. I believe it's already been renewed, and so I don't need to worry about it because uh, I think it was renewed by star plus or whatever its international home was regardless though it's it's a really good show and a really easy binge in the past week i started watching lockwood and company which netflix specifically kept away from american critics for no reason i fully understand uh i think it was just because it was a an international acquisition still seems odd not to have tried to get a new tv series from joe cornish reviewed by more people um i i liked i i watched Six episodes, and I think I'm probably done with it because the overall mythology arc of it doesn't really interest me all that much, unfortunately. I like the stars. I, I particularly like Ruby Stokes, who's the lead. I think she's very good. I only barely remembered her from Bridgerton, but I, th I think she is absolutely a star of a certain kind, and and this is that kind. Uh, but I, I ran out of interest. I think it's a I think it's a very interesting world that they're building, and I think that there are good beats to it. Maybe I'll catch up at some point, but yeah. So anyway, to recap, um, if for some reason you're curious, ABC is not dead yet. Does change into a different show at the end of its fourth episode if that's interesting to you. Uh, otherwise, it doesn't start off as a very good use of its great cast. Uh, the new season of You is very much of a piece with You, and I like Charlotte Ritchie as the new female lead. It continues to do what it does. The Harley Quinn special, lots and lots of Bane. If you are a fan of Bane, watch the Harley Quinn special. And Stolen Youth, if you are an aficionado of the, the burgeoning true crime cult documentary series genre. This will absolutely leave you scratching your head, horrified and vaguely incredulous, which is what its primary purpose is. Well, for more of Dan's weekly recommendations, be sure to subscribe to the Hollywood Reporter's Now See This newsletter and bookmark THR.com slash TV dash reviews for more. That feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you, as always, for listening to TV's Top 5 the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. Be sure to subscribe on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a little reviewy thing. Those suckers help spread the word of mouth. 
Come say hi to us on Twitter. We're always happy to hear from you. I'm at the fine print, F-I-E-N. She's at Snoodit with two O's. And let us know what's working, what isn't working, et cetera, et cetera. If you have questions for future mailbag segments, though, email us at tvstop5 at thr.com. That's tvstop5, the numeral five, at thr.com. Until next week, Leslie. Until next week, Dan. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandslots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.